Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop and join alongside me, Shelby King. And Shelby, am I not wrong in saying that this is podcast number... 100. Surprise, surprise. And we have a surprise guest for episode 100. And we thought it'd be very appropriate to welcome back our good friend, Mr. John Cole. John, welcome back to the show. Hello, guys. It's good to be back. 100. Yeah. Did you know it was episode 100? This is a surprise for you as well, I, huh? I did not know. That is really great. We, we sort amazing. of timed it out perfectly that way. A, a little bit on purpose and a little bit just dumb luck. But we're glad to have you with us here in the States. Yeah, it's been great. I, I love coming back to California. It's been beautiful. So, um, yeah, there, a lot's been happening since the last time we had you on the show, a lot in the ecosystem, and there's probably no better way to get a good picture of what's going on probably in the last few months than looking at some of the things in the headlines today, and I know Shelby's picked out a couple things that I think kind of just nail it. Yeah, um, so we'll get started right away. Um, the first topic I wanted to start off with was some top takeaways and stats from 3.25 billion site visits. So using data from SimilarWeb, um, growthbadger.com did a study about different traffic sources and drivers across different niches. So I thought we could go over a few of the most interesting takeaways. Um, the first one I wanted to start with is that most niches in the study get over half their traffic from Google search, but the most reliant on Google search is the health and medicine uh, niche with nearly 88% of traffic coming from search. That seems pretty like spot on to what I think just because I think about Googleitis and Googling different symptoms that you think yeah. you have and it's always like you're going to die in two days. Um, but the other reliant niches are travel at nearly 73%, uh, personal finance is about 68%, um, food and recipes at nearly 66%, and business and marketing at almost 58% of traffic coming from Google search. Um, the least reliant of these niches in the study was crypto with only 45.74% coming from Google search. So I'm wondering where that traffic is or most of their traffic is coming from. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, there's probably a long list of different uh, strange URLs and things like yeah. that associated with that. But I'm, I'm not surprised that none of that is overly surprising to me. No, it's not. All the crypto guys are probably connecting via VPN. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I I don't know. It, it's uh, it's always interesting to me when we do have a uh, we do have such a dominant player in the market, Google, and um, there is, I don't see any signs of them losing any of that uh, power. If you like, um, they are. It, it really is just a habitual thing. Uh, but I think actually it's a repeat visitor situation as well, um, and quite often. Uh, the way that people use browsers, um, you know, the pre-fill that you get from Google Chrome, for example. You don't have to go to Google to go, then go onto the site. You just go direct. I think what's interesting is you think about something. Well, my when I think about the health aspect, I'm not surprised that health and and uh, medicine is number one. Um, I also think that because of that, Google probably has an amazing insight into human psychology in terms of um, all. I mean, we all have that kind of. Uh, uh, you know, that madness that happens with, oh, maybe, you know, maybe it's nothing, but better Google it really quick. And you're like, oh, I knew it. It's a tumor, you know? And uh, <laughs> the the thing that I think is interesting about it in general is uh, those seem to be, in a lot, a lot of ways, the, the niches that Google's algorithm and core updates and things like that recently have been probably the hardest on, meaning you see the most volatility, 
mm-hmm. um, just reported in general on, on those spaces. So it makes sense that Google would spend a lot of their attention in those areas because they're probably, if they did a pie chart of where the vast majority of their you know, traffic is headed, they could probably group it into similar groupings internally and say, these are the ones we need to do a good job with. Yep. So the next takeaway is that Facebook delivers over 65% of all social media traffic, um, which is more visits per month than all other social networks combined. Um, With that being said, Instagram drives under 1% overall across all niches. But um, something that I found interesting was even in the fashion and beauty niche, websites receive less than 5% of monthly visits through Instagram which is a little surprising to me just given the prevalence of like social media influencers, especially in the beauty and fashion space. Well, I think one of the things that's really clear about Instagram and John, you could probably speak to this better better than I can, spending a lot of time with the brands and things along those lines. But Instagram in general and uh, influencers on that platform are not really great at driving traffic. They're really mm-hmm. great at maybe driving actions on there and quote unquote awareness. Um, but they're we've not seen that Instagram is a driver of traffic um, by any stretch. No, it's it's really hard actually to put a framework around it. I, I actually met an entrepreneur who uh, had set up a business um, basically doing real-time bidding of influencer influence, uh, which I thought was a really great idea, but also I was very skeptical about its like the efficacy, you know, how much it would really work. Because brands are, you know, they're really willing to spend enormous amounts of money on the right people to uh, um, give their brand that, you know, that shine, that reflected yeah. sort of glory. Um, but it just doesn't have the scale. Like, even if you've got a million followers, it's not, it's nothing compared with what you can get from search. I think we think of Facebook as being a closed ecosystem, and it's easy to forget that Facebook owns Instagram. But mm. Instagram truly is a closed ecosystem that even though, um, you know, there are some mechanisms to send traffic offsite. Facebook, you can you can post a link, right, in a newsfeed. In, in Instagram, you really kind of have to hack it to send traffic offsite. You can, once you reach uh, a certain follower account or get a verified account from your stories, you can do the swipe up feature. But my guess, I, it's funny, I looked at traffic on a couple sites here recently and noticed uh, down at the very bottom on the social traffic, there was an Instagram stories and a site that, got uh, over 100,000 visits from social media. There were 19 Instagram story visits in the, in the date range that I was looking at. So 19 mm. out of over 100,000. And so it's just giving you an idea Ouch. that it's, it's probably not, that actually Facebook stories was sending more traffic. And I would say that if you looked at the percentage of, you know, Facebook stories versus Instagram stories viewed, Instagram's probably blowing them away. So I think, um, yeah, uh, we can probably turn the page on thinking that Instagram's ever going to be a major traffic source for mm. publishers. I know, I, and everyone, I know, I know that Facebook has been in the, in, in the news because of all the privacy uh, problems that they've had, and I, I would consider that they're going to be continuing to get into a little bit of trouble for all the things that they've been doing, um, tracking their users, you know, with the Facebook app being not necessarily on, but it's using your proximity to... Wi-Fi networks and Bluetoothing to other people that you meet in the real world. You know, if you were if you were a publisher and you wanted to start a really successful new publication, you could call you could start one called FacebookScandals.com, and every week you'd have brand yeah. new fresh content. Exactly, but I'm everyone, sure Facebook already owns that. Yeah, they probably do. <laughs> they probably do. Oh, they would sue you. Oh, for sure. There's a story right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could be the victim, the David to the Goliath. 
but it's the the thing for me anyway is that everyone's forgetting that that Facebook is still growing as a business it's still growing traffic um, it's just it is hard to pull the users out but it's probably better than those other platforms um, weirdly enough uh, Bing is worth looking at still um, I, w- I heard from a publisher the other day that oh my, my Bing traffic is up 30% and I'm, I'm looking into it I don't know why well um, I saw recently that, eh? that DuckDuckGo in terms of market shares actually uh, surpassing Bing in a lot of markets yeah. and so it's worth looking at that as well yeah I think if we're talking about traffic sources um, I think for our kind of publishers um, organic search is still going to be number one from all of the different search engines yeah I think organic search Facebook and then um, direct having users come back to you I think that those are probably the most tried and true yeah. sources of traffic Email, right now that sort yeah. of thing yeah all right so the last takeaway i wanted to discuss is that reddit drives over three times as much traffic to blogs as youtube which i was actually a little bit surprised about i know you in the past tyler have talked about you know how to use reddit to generate some traffic um but when i think about blogs i think about youtube a lot and not so much about reddit Uh, i think of youtube in the same way that i think about instagram in a lot of ways where the experience and what you're looking for from that platform is very self-contained. There's very few times that I can think as a user, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving YouTube from YouTube. Like if I leave YouTube because of something on YouTube, it's usually I'm Googling something. Like I maybe heard about something because there's not really a great mechanism to link off of. You can put links in the description and things like that, but it's kind of like Instagram. Um, on the flip side, Reddit is really very pure in that respect. Um, you can, it can be a fruitless effort and you can waste a lot of time there if you're not using it ethically or um, as a community member. But I've also seen sites that, that I, one that I've owned where I've gotten lots and lots of traffic from just one particular article that, that did really well. Um, so yeah, it's not surprising to me actually. John, do you have anything to add? Not really, I think, I think Reddit's amazing. Right. I think it's great. Um, so again, that one is from Gareth Badger, and I, rem- I recommend our listeners to take a look at the article because it gives readers a good idea of how different niches stack up against each other, but it also kind of does a deep dive into each of them individually. Um, so the next topic we have on deck is uh, click-through rate findings from 5 million Google search results. So this study comes from Backlinko. And it lists out the top 10 findings. So just like the last topic, I thought we could go through a few interesting takeaways. Um, The first one is on average, the number one organic search result has a CTR of 31.7 and is 10% and is 10 times more likely to receive a click compared to um, a page in the number 10 position. So it's not so surprising, but 31.7% click through rate. That's pretty high. It's pretty high, um, especially given some of the, the material that was out probably a couple of months ago about just how um, many Google searches end in, in uh, no-click no um, no actions. Uh, I'm, I, I would venture to guess that not, not a lot of that has changed over the, the last few years. They always, the joke is always, if you want to hide a body, put it on page two of Google. Um, and I think that probably still remains true. Um, I am seeing more and more uh, mobile results now inside of Search Console where I'll see sites actually lose rankings and get more traffic. Um, and I think that the, 
the so this phenomenon is one that we looked at with uh, some engineers as well. And our best guess is that in a lot of cases, mobile users are actually scrolling down further to get past the knowledge graph and ads and just trying to get to an organic result. And the, the best way to like be sure that you're getting that is to go down almost to the middle. But um, that's our best guess as to why that phenomenon occurs. But John, your thoughts on this? Yeah, my thoughts are that uh, I would love to know the trend. I'd like to know if 30% or 32% from the first position in Google is actually increasing or decreasing. My, my, th my thinking is that it's probably decreasing because of the no-click, the increase in no-click searches. Um, the other thing is, um, under what circumstances? So did they do it by platform? Did they do it by you know, mobile, tablet, yeah. desktop? And how many ads are there above that number one? Mm -hmm. So sometimes there are five, right? Five ads above the first organic search And result. that doesn't even include rich results and things like and that. And video that and everything well. else. So you've got all the rich snippets. You've got video as well. And it's... Um, and it's not the same for everyone because I'm pretty sure Google.co.uk is different from the US in many probably significant ways. Yeah, and I think one of the things to take into account with that is that this data and all the data that you see on this stuff uh, is at best sort of correct because yeah. Google's not sharing this information with anyone correct. and they always, anytime they respond to it, say, that data is inconsistent with the data that we have. I mean, it could be off by half a percent, and they would say <laughs> yeah, that. But it's inconsistent. But something to take into account that no-click search one um, didn't account for. I think Google Discover and a whole bunch of other things that Google came out and said it's not accounting for these things. We know it's not because there, there's yeah. no way that anyone would know. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's always worth taking into account with this too. It could be worse. Yeah. It could be better. I mean, there's, there are a number of levers that Google can pull. I mean, I just mentioned one, which is geo. Um, but I'm pretty sure that the Google search engine is, is super smart when it has the opportunity to be. So, you know, Google would like to know where you are when you're searching. That's one thing. But it's also, um, I would say, for example, if you, if you were looking for something on your phone and you... Um, we're scrolling down. You were saying you're trying to get past all of the ads or whatever. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if this is me just completely making this up, but it seems to me that Google is altering those rankings. And if five and a half million visits doesn't seem to be a particularly huge number when you think about how many searches there are, so. Whilst I love the idea of trying to look into Google, I'm not sure how really illuminating this is. <laughs> so it's very of, interesting. It's one of the things I always say whenever we have a core algorithm update and we'll look at data from six, 7,000 sites and we'll glean takeaways. And the thing is, is, you know, that's such a small sample size that it's anything that we would glean from it is just pure happenstance and could yeah. be completely irrelevant to the rest of the ecosystem, you know? Yeah. But is that, uh, how many searches were there, Shelby? Uh, it said 5 million uh, search results. So that's so few. Yeah. All right. So the next one might hold more true than the other ones. It's that title tags that contain a question have a 14% higher click-through rate versus pages that don't have a question in their title. This is something that you kind of touched on, Tyler, in one of your internal trainings here at the office today. But do you think that holds true? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. I think... Um, 
I think from an SEO title writing standpoint, you always have to walk that line of how do I create something that is informative all without being clickbaity. You can't go the social media kind of advertising route, but at the same time, um, you you do still have to sell your content somehow. And I think questions do a good job of that. Yeah, and uh, people do um, test this, don't they? If you're if, like, I think the classic is you go and you use uh, a PPC campaign yeah. with your title that you're going to put into your Google, um, sorry, that's going to be a, a natural search result, and you test the click-through rate from an ad, and then you then put that into your title. Yeah. Um, that's kind of an old trick, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a good one, and it still holds true if you get a couple bucks. Um, yeah. It doesn't take much to for a lot of queries to be able to throw some ad impressions out there. Because think about this is, you might say, well, I'm spending $4.50 a click or whatever. Um, yeah, you might spend $40, but you might get a lot of impressions off of that and it wouldn't take very much data to maybe get a direction one way or the other. Mm. And I've seen some internal dashboards at, at very large publishers and uh, they routinely uh, test those uh, titles, those meta tags, um, A-B testing, which is, you know, it's good to do. All right, the last one I just threw in because it kind of seems a bit interesting, but emotional titles may improve your CTR. So titles with negative or positive sentiment improve CTR by around 7%, but adding power words such as secret, ultimate, perfect, best, and insane uh, found a decrease CTR by almost 14%. So it seems if you're on the good or bad side, that's fine, but if you're trying to be a little bit more almost clickbaity in your title, that could, you know, do you some um, bad. Yeah, I, uh, it's always finding that balance. And uh, yeah, I think you have to be creative in how you, 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 I mean, SEO, one of the things that people I think get lost in sometimes and the reason why there's so, so many misconceptions in the, in the, in the ecosystem just about, uh, about SEO and, and what is a good practice is because it's an industry filled with marketers, right? Marketers, not engineers, and engineers are the ones that have really engineered the way that Google indexes content and ranks it, and then you're having marketers interpret things, and often that those two things don't go together. And so marketers, this is one area where they can shine, which is how do you get people to be interested in your content? One of the best ways is to sensationalize it to some extent. Yeah, and well, as everyone knows, if you're trying to get, if you're increasing your CTR, um, what's happening to your quality. So I think that's what Google's always been really good at is detecting quality. So, yeah. yeah. All right, so the last topic we have on deck today is about um, Google's rollout of first price auctions. So after months of testing its first price auction on 10% of inventory that runs through Google Ad Manager, um, Google has started to kind of roll out its complete um, rollout of the first price auction and this is kind of to keep up with the rest of the ad tech market. So since then, publishers have seen CPN spikes between 9 and 50% on display inventory. Um, and they're saying this is a direct result of uh, first price auction. And that's within the first few days of the rollout. So other patterns, such as the volume of impressions traded via header bidding, are less consistent with this. Several have seen a bump in impressions traded uh, of more than 10% since the rollout, while others have seen 
impressions dropped despite CPM risings. So experts say that publishers shouldn't expect a long-lasting increase and that any kind of large transition like this is always going to cause fluctuations. So do you, what's your take? Do you agree that publishers shouldn't expect this to keep trending long-term? So I'm going to defer most of this to John, but I, will, I want to point out something about the premise before I let him get into it because this is his world. Um, I will point out that I, it's a Digiday article, correct? Yeah, this is from Digiday. So, so the... So I, I glanced at it, and I my take on it initially was it seems like a lot of anecdotal information. So we're not looking at a lot of information. So it's the classic case of somebody going, "Hey, I my revenue's up today. Anybody else? You know?" And a couple people saying, "I," and then maybe a couple other people that are like, "Ours is way down," and maybe just choosing to stay silent. Um, but either way, I don't know that there's a lot that we can glean from that. But John, this is your world. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, a, it's a good world to be in if you're Google at the moment because they have, um, this is a real game changer. So for a very long time, as I'm sure the listeners know, um, if you're an advertiser and you wanted to bid inside Google's ad exchange, whatever you bid, you would only pay for the second price. So whatever um, was one cent above the second price auction. So that enabled you to be very bold with your ad budgets. And um, they call it, a, I think, isn't it called Dutch auction as well? Where it's a, a, yeah. the second price auction, let's just keep calling it that. Second price auction. And let's say you've got $10,000 to spend um, and you, you want to be aggressive. Um, you know that you're getting the reassurance of not overpaying because you're only paying one cent above the second price, which enables you to be very confident. And so a lot of uh, bidding rules that have been set in the past by advertisers have been based around that. Um, then came the emergence of um, other alternative exchanges and, and header bidders who were operating a first price auction. And first price auction is as it sounds, whatever you bid, you pay. Um, so you might overpay, but you might also then definitely annihilate your competition and get that inventory. Um, Google have effectively taken away an advantage that Hedabit has had because they would be able to go, um, the, or the publisher would be able to go out to the ad exchange, find out what the bid was, and then um, set a price floor, which was based on the second price auction, knowing that's what they could get from Google and see if they can get anything else. And if the, you're the advertiser and you're using both um, Google ad exchange and let's say a Hedabit like AppNexus, um, you would probably be using both platforms. You might end up bidding against yourself and you know it now it just levels the playing field I think it's a really really smart move from Google uh, I also am uh, in favor of it as as a publisher you know myself I want to see a fair auction I don't like people yeah. to add tech businesses being in the middle taking the money um, so I think it's I think it's great um, what's going to be really interesting, though, because it's a sort of a knocking the legs out of their competition move, um, is where will Hedabit is go? What will they turn into? It's a very tough space already. Where are you getting your unique demand from when you no longer have the advantage of a first price versus a second price auction? They were effectively sitting in that gap. Um, in terms of the bump, I don't. I don't really believe it either. I mean, I think we're going to see more volatility. Um, like I said at the beginning, I think yeah, I when think, you have a... I think advertisers are part of that as well, right? Because they have to adjust too. So I think that's why I'm quick to point out the anecdotal part yes. of this because I, 
I think it could very much, you probably have people that have gone the other direction and we're going to see, like you said, a lot more of that probably too. We're, de- we're definitely going to have um, a very good Q4, um, us publishers. And I think that you'll, it's very likely to see that Black Friday is going to be an all-time record. Um, so I think that's good. Um, I just think it's going to take a while to shake out. It also highlights how important it's going to be for publishers to be able to set the pricing of all their ads. And if they're not using a platform like you know Zoic, how do they do that? I think it's probably going to expose a few flaws in people's business models if they've been over-reliant on, on that setup. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think we're going to see uh, a lot of those that are sort of in the ad tech header bidding space uh, move towards other parts of the market maybe. Um, but I also actually think just the rate at cha- uh, of which change takes place, like we were talking about ad networks earlier about how some of them have just hung on somehow. And it's because this, you know, a lot of publishers, they're very independent. And so, um, you know, often it's, it takes a while for that change to actually occur. I mean, how many publishers are still using the waterfall method, yep. you know, in terms of ad operations, quite a few. And so, um, yeah, I think header bidding actually will probably remain this weird legacy thing that happens for a long time and may still have some efficacy. But for the, for a large part, I think when everything moves on to the next latest and greatest, it'll still stick around for those that have been able to weather the storm. There'll be some warhorse ad tech businesses out there. Yeah, well, it's because it's, um, you know, people forget about stuff. You know, they set it up, they put an ad tag on the page, it makes me some money, you know, kind of forget about it. And they get their money coming in, but when nothing's really competing, um, you know, you can pretty much expect the performance to go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I met a publisher in Paris a couple of weeks ago, and um, uh, quite a large traffic. It was like one and a half to two million visits a month, and use it was outsourcing to a local company who were basically throwing everything up in AppNexus and backfilling with AdSense. <laughs> I was like, hmm, wow. <laughs> That's surprising. So it just shows you there are there are big properties which do not really get very much love and are using maybe what you could call an adequate solution, but, you know, could make four times as much if they have a, a good one. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for this week. Is there anything that you gentlemen like to add? No, I know we're, we're going to get you back here for another episode, John. And so... Um, yeah, any, any parting thoughts for our listeners on the topics we touched on today? Um, not really. I think, uh, I think we, uh, I'm really looking forward to the end of the month, really looking forward to the beginning of Q4. I think we are in really good shape. Um, I think the industry itself is, um, is sharpening up. I think, I think we're, we're living in a good time for publishers right now. Things are going well. Yeah, I think things are getting healthier, as you, you had mentioned. And I think um, there's probably gripes that we all have with different things, but I do think that um, if you're a publisher and you want more control and more transparency, I do think that we're moving in that direction. So that's a good thing. And that's a good thing for all of us. And that is what we'll leave you with today on the Publisher Lab. Shelby, anything else? Um, no, just thank you for those who have listened uh, to our 100th episode. And I think it was episode number 35 or 36 when we first started together, Tyler. So it's come a long way. Yep, 65 later, and we're actually on pace, and we've been doing them each week. And yes. um, we want to thank all of you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Publisher Lab.